The scripture reading this morning is the uh, story of the introduction of the Passover from the book of Exodus, chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat while you, make, while you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it, they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it. With your belt fastened and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. This morning, uh, I'd like to return to the book of John. Uh, we've been, for quite some time, <laughs> making our way through the book of John in our Sunday service. And uh, we've taken various breaks and done things in the middle. And as we have recently, for the last four Sundays, we've been sort of addressing this situation and uh, then we had uh, Palm Sunday and Easter. And uh, so now we're coming back to John and we're in chapter 11. One of the uh, most important questions that there is, is who is Jesus? And uh, we sort of talked about this last time. Now, people don't necessarily notice that that's an important question, of course. The disciples, in the story we looked at last week, they were in the boat with Jesus, 
and Jesus was asleep, and they were rowing, and then a storm came up, and then they got scared out of their wits, and Jesus was asleep. Well, when a group of people are scared out of their wits, and one of them is asleep, they're going to wake him up. And uh, they were, uh, you know, like, what is your deal? Don't you even care about us? Here we are dying and you're sleeping. That's Well, when Jesus calmed the sea and the storm, that's when they asked the question, who is this guy? Even the sea and the wind obey him. We have a similar kind of situation in John chapter 11 where Jesus does something utterly unprecedented and astounding. He raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, we've already looked at that part of the story. Uh, So we're picking up the story in verse 45 where we read this. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary to the graveside of Lazarus and seen what Jesus did, believed in him. Uh, That makes perfect sense to me. I wonder how you would respond (laughs) if you were at a funeral and someone came in the room And the the person is laying there in the casket, and they've been dead for days. And someone came in the room and said, hey, get up, and the person actually came back to life. I wonder how you would respond if you witnessed such an event. It makes perfect sense to me that people uh, suddenly uh, believe in Jesus. Now, most of these people, of course, this wasn't the first time they ever encountered Jesus. They sort of were familiar with his claims. They heard him say, Lazarus, come out. Jesus had also said to Martha just then, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will not die, and even if he does die, he'll live again. So, many believed. But, the next verse says, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now that's in contrast to believed. So, it really does say, some, instead of believing, did this. Told the Pharise- went and told the Pharisees what Jesus had done. And they weren't doing that as some kind of announcement of a wonderful uh, thing that had happened. They were telling on Jesus. We know that in part because the chief priests and Pharisees immediately have a meeting about it. Some didn't believe. 
So the chief priests and Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? And that is the question I'd like to focus on in our time together this morning. What are we to do? When we encounter Jesus, the one who raised Lazarus from the dead, the one who now we know arose from the dead himself, When we encounter the real Jesus, what are we to do? And I'm going to observe three different possibilities in this text. Let me just finish reading the text. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Now, the question the council asks is a good question. What are we to do? Now, of course, they weren't posing it like I'm posing. They're just saying, what are we going to do? We, in other words, we need to do something. And then they give the most curious reason for this man performs many signs. And apparently none of them recognize that the signs are pointing somewhere. They literally cannot go where these signs point. So here they are. They're, no one's denying the resurrection of Lazarus. or any of the other signs Jesus had done. They are noticing the consequence, or what they think is the likely consequence. They say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Now, we already know that is probably not true, because people witnessed 
in person the resurrection of Lazarus, and rather than believe in him, they went and informed the Pharisees. But I can see their point politically. I mean, they're, they're, sort, of saying, they're sort of saying, look, Jesus did this, more people believed in him. What else is he going to do? And more people will believe in him. Sooner, after a while, everyone's going to be believing in him. And don't you just have to ask the question, why would you regard that as a problem? What if everyone believed in him? Clearly, they don't think that would be good. And they say why. The Romans will come. The Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. That's the problem. They can't have that. They don't want the Romans to come. They don't want to be less at liberty to govern their own country than they are now. The Romans will take away our nation. The Romans will take away our position in that nation. That was not a tolerable option. But one of them said, you guys aren't thinking. You don't understand. It's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Clearly, what he's saying is, if we get rid of Jesus, the problem will be solved. So that's one reaction. The other, another one we already read. Many of the Jews, therefore, who come with Mary had seen what he had did, believed in him. They trusted him. And then there's a third reaction. It's toward the end of our text where we read this. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and, men, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before Jesus, uh, before the Passover, sorry, They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple. So they're standing around in the temple in the Passover season and they're going, what do you think? You think he's coming? Think he's coming? Think he's coming? What do you think? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders. If anyone knew where he was, they should report it so they could arrest him. And that's the third reaction, these bystanders. I just want to talk about these three possibilities. What are we to do? Three possibilities in response to an encounter with Jesus. The first one is to trust him. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He raised Lazarus from the dead. 
now we have the additional, the greatest sign of all time, the resurrection of Jesus himself, which we celebrated last Sunday, which we celebrate every Sunday, which we celebrate every day. He rose from the dead. We trust him. We trust him. So people trusted him, some of the people. There's another possibility. What are we to do? We view Jesus as a threat. We view Jesus as a threat. Now, how, how is a person who raises someone from the dead a threat to anyone? Well, if you prize any position of power, Jesus is a threat to you. I'm going to say that again. If you prize any position of power, Jesus is a threat to you. Now, I didn't say if you hold a position of power. I said if you prize it. We can find this a bunch of different ways. Here, the Pharisees and the chief priests, they, they figure this out politically. They notice that Jesus is, conduct, is doing these amazing, great things, and they think everyone's going to follow Jesus, then he won't be fo- they won't be following us. And plus, if, someone gets, if anyone gets too popular, the Romans are going to come here and mess the whole thing up. But they prize their position of power. But if anyone prizes any position of power, they're in trouble with Jesus because Jesus Christ is Lord and there's only one. And Jesus exercises authority with humility. Jesus exercises his authority by going to the cross for our sakes. Anyway, so you might perceive Jesus as a threat if you prize a position of power. You might see Jesus as a threat if your hope is in the politics of this world. For these gentlemen, the council, their hope, their reason for getting up today, their future depended on their maintenance of this particular political position and keeping the Romans at bay. Well, I would just pose to you, if your hope is in any kind of politics anywhere, it is misplaced and it will be disappointed sooner or later. If your hope is in the politics of this world, that is not an adequate source. There's only one, and that is the one who's the resurrection and the life, who can say to us, don't fear the the government that can kill you. Fear the God that can send you to hell for eternity. The politics of this world are not going to solve our problem. 
And if I'm investing my hope in the politics of this world, that is an idolatry. And Jesus is a threat. Jesus will one day establish his kingdom, and there won't be a vote. Now, if I perceive Jesus as a threat, the answer to the question, what must I do, is get rid of Jesus one way or the other. And now we've come to the point where the only way that's going to work is to execute him, to kill him. And these men justify that by saying, well, it will save the nation. Well, one of them in particular, the chief priest, which John makes something out of here, he says, here you have the chief priest, and he proclaims, it's better that one man should die for the people than that the whole nation should perish. And John notices, John claims he did not say this of his own accord. He prophesied. He didn't mean to prophesy, but he did. He didn't know he was prophesying, but he was. And he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, that the nation of Israel would be saved by the act of the sacrifice of Christ. And not just the nation, but also all of God's people scattered around the whole wide world. That God is going to, by the death of Christ, assemble his own nation. But if I perceive Jesus as a threat, then what I've got to do is get rid of Jesus one way or the other. Many people who have a, are, are threatened by any kind of real encounter of Jesus, people who prize positions of power, who can't recognize anyone as Lord, who need to maintain their own position. They get rid of Jesus one way or another. Simply deny the reality that he exists or that he rose or that he died or in all kinds of ways. These men thought they would eliminate the threat by having Jesus killed. The third possibility is we regard Jesus as a curiosity, a sensation. And you can see that in the crowd. They're saying, they're looking around and saying, what do you think? You think he's going to show up? They're, they're, they're looking for the excitement of the day's news. What matters to them is how well entertained they will be by the situation. I don't really care one way or another. They probably wouldn't vote to have Jesus executed, uh, except that might make a pretty good story. So they're sensationalized. They're wondering what's going to happen, what's going to happen. You know, we all act this way sometimes, don't we? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? Oh. <laughs> we get all worked up about the drama, and we don't even think about 
who is this guy? He raised someone from the dead. And so we're wrapped up in the conflict between Jesus and his disciples and the council and the Pharisees. Some of us Christians act this way sometimes. We're, we're just excited by the drama. Even in church, we, we go to church because something's going to happen. Uh, and Jesus is not really our Savior. He's just a celebrity we like. I can tell if Jesus is just a curiosity or a sensation if I am reserving judgment about Jesus. If I'm not making a decision one way or the other, but I'm maybe I'm just liking Jesus. I like some of the stuff Jesus says, and I reject some of the stuff Jesus says. Of course, if anyone reads what Jesus said, they can't even do this. Because if I don't accept him as Lord and Savior and Son of God, then uh, I've got to admire something like he says in the next chapter. The, the poor you always have with you, you don't always have me. I'm sorry, but if he's not the Son of God, that is not a good thing to say. So if I'm reserving judgment, if I want to take some of what Jesus says and leave the rest, if Jesus is just one of many options on my menu, I'm in this curiosity crowd. I'm also in this curiosity crowd if I think I'm okay without a savior. I want you to notice something these people were doing, something they were supposed to be doing. But listen to what this says. The Passover was at hand. Now, I think when John says the Passover was at hand, he means more than just that in this context. Jesus, the Passover to end all Passovers, is also at hand. But anyway, he says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. If I think I can purify myself adequately, I don't need a savior. If I think I can be good enough, if I can practice these sacrifices sufficiently, God will accept me. I don't need the Passover to end all Passovers. The book of Hebrews reminds us that these sacrifices year after year after year, day after day after day, every day, day after day, the sacrifices to the temple. And then, of course, in the Passover, you have a special sacrifice, a special celebration. Day after day after day, he says, here's the thing, none of those sacrifices ever actually solved the problem of sin. The sacrifice of Jesus solves the problem of sin once and for all. Solves the problem of death 
once and for all. If I think this sacrificial system we have, this religious system, maybe not this, you know, early Judaism, maybe you have some other religious system. If you think you don't need a savior, you're like these folks. You're not trusting in Christ. Of course, I guess there's a fourth option. I'm, I think the fourth is really just kind of a different version of the third, and that is just ignore the whole thing. You know, most of us in life, we go through life working very diligently to ignore things that really matter a lot. But we're scared of them, so we just pretend they're not real. And I can suppose a lot of people just ignore Jesus. But if we encounter someone who raised a man from the dead and then rose from the dead himself permanently, what are we going to do? Well, I might just go, wow, that was entertaining. Or I might go, oh, that's going to be a problem. Or I might say, who is that guy? I need to know him. Meanwhile, God is at work in all these things. What's God doing in this text? Well, he's moving Caiaphas to prophesy for one thing, and to prophesy what? That Jesus will die for the nation. That Jesus' death will result in the salvation of the nation. And it will gather into one, one new people, the, the letters of Paul say, Ephesians. One new man. It will gather, Jesus' death will gather into one, the children of God who are scattered. Jesus has already alluded to this earlier in his passage about the good shepherd. He says, I have sheep that are not of this fold. I'll need to collect them as well. And so what God is doing in this passage is the Passover to end all Passovers. And if the blood of the sacrifice of Christ is applied to me, I will not suffer the judgment of God. It's really quite simple. And the sacrifice of Christ is not like this sacrifice. It actually, finally, totally satisfies justice before God, for the people of God. So what are we to do? I think you have three choices. You can just enjoy the drama. You can experience the threat. Or you can trust him. I've noticed that when Jesus actually shows up in person, the crowd gets divided. What will they do? I do pray that <laughs> you trust in Christ. When I have trusted in Christ, I rest in what he's done. 
I recognize that it's not up to me, that there's nothing I could do to solve my own problem. Yet I can find rest and peace in Christ. I can trust this promise. I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, you'll live even if you die. So the resurrection of Lazarus, sort of a prototype, the resurrection of Jesus is the first real permanent resurrection. And that's what he promises to those who trust him. He proved who he was. I do hope you'll trust in him. Father, we give you thanks for your great, amazing grace shown to us in Christ. We thank you for the Spirit of God who enables us to believe Lord, we thank you for this time we've had together this morning. Lord, I pray that your people will be encouraged. Help us to bring the word and the personal communication of our Savior to the people around us. Lord, we pray for those people that they would see the Savior, that, that they would not run away under threat, but they would run to God. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. Those who run to it are saved. Father, we uh, just give you thanks for our, our time together today. In Jesus' name, amen.